0: Good morning to each of you. Just give me a moment here. I have more paraphernalia with me up here than I normally do. to Get it all organized. Uh, Next Sunday, we, in the will of the Lord, are going to be uh, receiving, uh, announcing, christening new members. I don't know what the word is. Announcing uh, new members here at Grace Community Church. And in preparation for that, Uh, And in discussion uh, with the elders, we thought it would be a good idea if I spoke, if I preached on church membership in the context of Colossians chapter 3. Now, church membership, speaking on church membership, preaching on church membership, it sounds uh, about as exciting as watching paint dry, doesn't it? And, uh, but I guarantee you that it uh, might not be exciting but I trust it will be interesting, and I pray it will, be, it will be profitable. And so I ask you, I beseech you to give attention to what I'm going to say out of God's Word this morning, and consider carefully how it applies to us here at Grace Community Church, and how it applies to you individually, and also as a, as a family. Uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, is ask three questions. And the third will eventually bring us into Colossians chapter 3. So Colossians chapter 3 is our goal, a couple of verses there. But we're going to take the scenic route in in finding our way there by working slowly through these three questions. And so the first question is this, an obvious one. Why do we here at Grace Community Church emphasize church membership? A lot of churches don't. Uh, So why do we? give so much attention to this uh, subject. Why do we place particular importance on this theme of church membership? A simple answer is this. Uh, A healthy church takes church membership seriously. Uh, Here at Grace Community Church, we're committed to what are known as the nine marks of a healthy church. We as elders went through this five years ago. We've just started to go through it again. Uh, As care groups, we went through the... uh, The other book that accompanies this one, what is a healthy church member? Maybe four years ago, four and a half years ago, some of you will remember that. And one of the marks of a healthy church out of that book by Mark Dever is uh, a healthy church takes church membership seriously, seriously. Now that might be a stumbling block for some, uh, initially, for the following reason. Uh, We never read of church membership in the Bible, or do we? Um. We don't actually ever find the word membership in the New Testament. And so work through this with me. Uh, Nor do we ever find the word Trinity in the Bible. And yet we all affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, don't we? We deduce that doctrine from Scripture, employ the word. Same is true when it comes to this term membership. No, you will not find it in the Bible. But is a word we employ as a local church, although not a biblical term, but certainly to convey a biblical concept. A biblical concept. I could take all morning uh, affirming that. I'm going to affirm it just briefly by appealing to the example of the Apostle Paul. How do we know this idea of church membership is actually a biblical concept? And so let me just mention four things from the example of the Apostle Paul. Here they are briefly. Number one... Paul knows who's in each church to which he writes. And so when we get to Colossians chapter 4, he's never been to this church, but he's going to mention a bunch of names. For him to mention names implies what? That he actually knows who's in the church. And so it implies some sort of formal process whereby members are identified. That's obvious. Number two, Paul recognizes elders and deacons in each church. As a matter of fact, if you turn to the start of many of his epistles, he will address his letter to the saints and the elders and the deacons gathered in such and such a city. These offices are pointless and meaningless unless these leaders actually know who's under their charge. So the offices themselves imply a concept known as church membership. Number 3. Paul speaks of church discipline, culminating in expulsion from the church. Well, let's just reason through it. This makes no sense unless people actually know who's in the church. And the fourth argument from the Apostle Paul, again, we could go on and on, which is just four examples for us to think about. Paul encourages the practice of making lists. And so you can go to 1 Timothy 5 by way of example, where he encourages the church at Ephesus to make a list of widows. This practice is only possible if there's some understanding of who actually constitutes the church. And so membership. No, again, you can flip through the Bible, start to finish. You won't find this this, this term, biblical uh, church membership. But it certainly is a concept that reflects a biblical reality. And so that's why we take it seriously here at Grace Community Church. Second question is this. How do we approach, here at Grace Community Church, how do we approach church membership? I mean, exactly what are we talking about? We're simply referring to this, that yes, we have the universal church. We are all members in the body of Christ. But what we also have conveyed in the New Testament are local churches, uh, local expressions of the one body of Christ. And so membership is merely the term we use to describe The formal organization of a community of believers in a particular place. That's all it is. The formal organization, recognition of a community of believers in a particular place. How do we do that here at Grace Community Church? Most of you already know the answer to that. We do it through the foundations course. And so some people are going to become members here next Lord's Day. They completed last Lord's Day with our breakfast out in the back in the fellowship hall, the Foundations class, seven-week course. Uh, Is that the way you have to do it, must do it? No, but it's the way we've decided to do it here at Grace Community Church. Why? Because we think it's reasonable. We think it makes perfect sense. Two reasons. There are lots of reasons, two blatantly obvious reasons. The first is this. It gives new people an opportunity to what? To know us. It gives new people an opportunity, in particular... To learn something about our doctrine, what we believe, and of equal importance, something about how we actually function. What does it mean we're elder-led? That's new to a lot of people. And so our foundations course is designed to inform people. Sort of an engagement, a betrothal period. Give them an opportunity to get to know us. What is it we believe? How do we function? The opposite is also true. It gives us the opportunity to... I nearly said spy on you, but that's not the idea, to get to know you, right? All of the elders teach at least one of the classes. All of the staff teach at least one of the classes. So we have an opportunity to meet you, get to know you. And we're weighing a couple of things. Uh, We're weighing, we are uh, basically weighing, do we want this person to be a member here at Grace Community Church? Doctrinally, do they line up? Morally, do they line up? And is this someone we can embrace and welcome unequivocally with open arms into our midst and trust them with responsibilities and and, and release them for service and ministry in our context? Or there alarm bells going off, sirens wailing in the back of our minds, no, hold on here, there are problems that need to be dealt with, need to be resolved. And so our way of doing church membership is basically that foundations class. You get to know us, we get to know you. And then at the end of it, we announce our new members here publicly in the context of worship, those who are joining us and uniting themselves to us in this community of believers, this local expression organized, formalized in this particular locale, this particular location. Third question is this. What do we think here at Grace Community Church? Membership, church membership actually involves so what are you signing up for? Or what have most of you already signed up for? Uh, when we become members of a local church, and as members of this particular local church, uh, what do we actually think, believe, uh, this membership entails? What does it involve? That is a huge question, which requires an equally huge response, which I can't exhaust in its entirety uh, this morning. But how I want to approach it is very simply, uh, as follows. I want to draw your attention to what we have here at Grace Community Church known as a church covenant. And I do this with fear and trembling, knees knocking. How many of you actually realize we have a covenant here at Grace Community Church? Yes, my knees are knocking. Uh, It is actually in our, our foundations course book, All those bylaws in the Constitution, which you all read in detail at the end, yes, it's stated explicitly there. We have a church covenant. And so when we become members of this church, we are actually entering into a mutual covenant. You are actually, I am actually making promises. We are actually pledging to do something. And so I'm going to turn in the course book, And actually, on the screen behind me, Arthur's going to bring up uh, some of these points. That Actually, there are five uh, main paragraphs in this church covenant. There's the first one, and let me read it for you. And I'm reading right out of our Constitution. You have it there behind me on the screen. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior... And on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. It's very well written. It's actually adapted out of this little book. If you have this book at home, you can go, I think it's the second to last page, and you will find a suggested church covenant there. Our church covenant covenant is almost word for word what you'll find in the back of that that little book. Very well worded, very well expressed. And simply put, what we have in this first paragraph is simply our identity. Who? Who, Who? Who are we talking about? Uh, Who is engaging in this covenant? Who are becoming members of this local church? Our identity. And I want you to notice, in particular, the last four words of this paragraph. One body in Christ. One body in Christ. And so we believe, as Christians, we believe that, uh, as you've heard me express on innumerable occasions from this very pulpit, we believe that there was a moment in time in which the Lord Jesus took hold of us. Right? He took hold of us by the Holy Spirit. Call it the new birth. Call it regeneration. Call it conversion. A moment in time in which he took hold of us by the Holy Spirit. And in response, we took hold of him by faith. We received him as our Lord and Savior. At that moment, we became one with him. Meaning what? We became members of his body. We became members of the church universal. And so what we're doing, we've identified ourselves as Christians, followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus. We are in him. We are in union with him. We are part of this church, the church triumphant, already glorified in heaven, the church militant here on earth. We are part of the body of Christ. Well, we here in Glen Rose at this place, We are deciding to enter into a covenant with one another to live out in a local community that reality of what it means to be part of one body. That is our identity. And so we are expressing, here's what we're going to do. We understand who we are on a grand scale. We're one with Christ. We're one with every believer who's ever lived, who's living, who ever will live. We constitute the household of God, the temple of the Lord, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. But here's what we're called to do. We're called to live that out in a particular locality and identify ourselves with other believers so that we might give very practical expression to the oneness, which is the one body of Christ. That's our identity. You can pull up the second paragraph now, Arthur. There it is. We engage, therefore. Note the word therefore. So everything that follows in our covenant flows from that first paragraph. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge and holiness, To promote its prosperity, that's not materialism, in terms of blessing, spiritual blessing and spirituality. To sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline and doctrines. To contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor and the spread of the gospel through or to all nations. Now that's wordy, a little wordy. And I I suppose this was Tim Tim Preston years ago. What he decided to do was we're going to sum that up in just one concise statement. And that is our mission statement, our vision statement, which is what? We exist to equip God's people, God's saints, to delight in God's glory and to declare God's glory to the nations. How do we do that? It's right there on the screen behind me. How do we delight in God's glory? How do we equip people to delight in God's glory? And then how, conversely, do we declare that glory to the nations? There you have it. We walk together in Christian love. We strive for the advancement of this church, in particular growth in knowledge of the word, growth in holiness, personally, as families, as a community. We promote prosperity, spirituality. We sustain our worship, ordinances, discipline, doctrines. We contribute. And all of these things come together in perfect harmony, all of these means are to an end, which is to glorify God in our midst. How do we glorify him? By delighting in him. So the first paragraph had to do with our identity. This second paragraph has to do with what? Our mission. So the first paragraph answers the question, why? This par- Who, rather, this paragraph answers the question, why? Then the third paragraph, we move on. And we read the following. We also engage to maintain family and personal devotions. We To educate our children in the Christian faith, we recognize that the family is the basic unit of society. And therefore, the family is the basic unit of the church. And so we give it preeminent importance. We engage to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances. To walk circumspectly, fancy word for carefully, in the world to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all gossip, backbiting, and excessive anger, to seek God's help in abstaining from all drugs, food, drink, and practices that bring unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardize our own or another's faith. The body there isn't my physical body. It is the body, the whole. Anything I avoid anything that might harm The body, the community. And so here, in the first paragraph, we emphasize our identity. In the second paragraph, we emphasize our mission. In this third paragraph, the emphasis is primarily upon our pursuit of holiness. We are striving to be conformed to the likeness of God, holiness as made evident in every sphere of our lives, whether it be in the home or in the community or in the workplace or in relating one to another. The fourth paragraph now, Arthur. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy and speech to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the guidelines of our Savior to secure it without delay. Here the emphasis is on goodness. So identity, mission, holiness, goodness. This third paragraph, holiness, and now this fourth paragraph, goodness, of paramount importance. Why? Because when you think of what it means to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, When you think of what it means to be renewed in the image of God, that concept is summed up in those two words. To be renewed in God's image is to become holy, that is, morally pure, hence the emphasis in the third paragraph. To be renewed in the image of God is to be good, good how, in giving and forgiving And so we have these two great characteristics. So much of what characterizes God is what the old theologians called incommunicable. He does not communicate many of his attributes to us. We are not omnipresent. He alone is. We are not sovereign. He alone is. We don't know all things. He alone does. We're not almighty, all-powerful. He alone is. We are not incomparable. He alone is incomparable. But there are certain attributes which he has communicated to us whereby, and this was his intent with Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in the garden, to communicate, that is, to mirror his image to the entire created order. And you can sum it all up in those two words. Holiness and... Goodness. And so in our church government government, covenant, we have this emphasis. Yes, we identify who we're talking about, what it means to be one with Christ, one-bodied, local expression, living it out in reality day to day. We then emphasize our mission. What is it we're trying to achieve? We're trying to equip the saints to delight in God's glory and to declare that glory to the nations. And then we, we emphasize now the image of God and what it means to be renewed and what it is we are pursuing in that third paragraph, holiness. Now in this paragraph, goodness. And then it all ends with something which might seem a little strange, but is actually well-worded and extremely important. The fifth paragraph. We moreover engage. Yes, there it is. We moreover engage that when we move from this place, we will, if possible, unite with a church where we can carry out the articles of this confession and the spirit of this covenant. And so when someone moves from here, they cease to be a member of this church. That, that's a little different. I mean, you get, you get into some churches nowadays, and they have membership roles that go back 30, 40, 50 years. People haven't darkened the door of the church in 20 years, but they're still considered to be a member. Someone leaves here. Unless it's a student or something who plans to come back. When someone leaves here and they're gone, for whatever reason, they cease to be, for all intents and purposes, a member of this local church. The expectation is they will now seek out what? this covenantal relationship in a different context, the context in which they are now living. They will unite themselves by way of covenant with a different local expression of the one body of Christ that they might live out in reality, that is in daily experience, what they are by virtue of their union with Christ. So three questions. Why do we emphasize church membership here at GCC? How do we approach church membership here at GCC? And then this third question, what do we think church membership involves? I think our church covenant pretty well sums it up. And here's something, obviously, we're going to have to change as a church moving forward, is we're going to have to make sure this actually gets emphasized in our foundations course. Because it's just kind of left, and the expectation is people will read it and somehow understand exactly what it is they are engaging and committing themselves to. And so obviously, we're going to have to put a little more emphasis on that in our our Foundations course. I remember in the past, it's been a while now, Chris might remember, but we could be going back a couple of years. For a while, whenever we did receive new members, we would quote publicly at least a portion of this covenant. So maybe we need to go back to that practice as well to remind ourselves, what are we doing here? And what is this all about? And how does this play into the big picture and the universal church and God's plan to glorify himself through his son, through his people for all eternity? Now, I want to keep building on that third question. What do we we think church membership actually involves? And I want to do so now by drawing your attention to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to focus on verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. Four verses. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to consider, out of these four verses, four marks, one in each. Four marks of a church. Four marks of a church that lives out, is living out the reality of what it means to be one body. Four marks of a local church, Grace Community Church, for example. Four marks of what it means to live out the reality of what it means to be one body. Again, crucial. Extremely significant. Significant for us as a church, and this is why, part of the reason why we as elders are going through that little book again by Mark Dever and I, Marks of a Healthy Church. important for us to be evaluating ourselves. Uh, determining where, where are we, how are we doing. And extremely important for you as an individual, you as a member of a physical family, to be asking that question. Where am I? Where are we? How are we doing? Am I being faithful to this covenant? And please let me remind you, I mean the term covenant has just, it's been eviscerated of all significance today. But a covenant is a pledge, a commitment we make before the living God. To not live up to that covenant is to lie. To not live up to that covenant is actually very serious. And I'm guessing our Lord and God takes it very seriously. And so it's something we need to be considering once in a while. What what, what is going on here? What have I committed myself to? And how should I be contributing to the whole? And so four marks. I mean, we, we could expand on this subject. This is a huge subject again. But four marks in the context of Colossians chapter 3 that demonstrate that we are living out the reality of what it means to be one body. The first two we're going to go through quickly because we looked at them last week, last Sunday. And then three and four, in particular number three, will slow down a little bit and mull it over. So here's number one, based on verse 14. We are bound by Christ's love. There is the first mark of a church that lives out the reality Of what it means to be one body. Look at what Paul states in the 14th verse. And above all these. Put on love. Which binds everything together. In perfect. Harmony. Briefly. Because again we looked at it last Lord's Day. Above all these. What are. The these. We find them back in the 12th verse. Put on then. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, here we go, five characteristics. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Do you want living examples of what that looks like? He gives us two examples in verse 13. Number one, bearing with one another. And number two, if, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, here's the all-encompassing characteristic. When we put on Christ, above all these, put on love, which binds, it knits, it ties everything together in a harmonious whole, binds everything together in perfect harmony, whereby a local church becomes a well-oiled machine. Everything works harmoniously. Everything is working towards the same objective. Everyone is on the same wavelength. And despite the frustration of living in a community which is comprised of sinful individuals, this love brings harmony to the whole as we strive together in a common purpose. The second mark is this, in verse 15. Ruled... By Christ's peace. And so look again at what Paul says, 15th verse. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So rule, have sway, have influence, dictate your decision-making process, for example. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful so yes, we're bound together by love. That's the first mark. Here's the second. We are ruled by Christ's peace. I've heard this verse used. The concept, the principle is true, but it's a, but it's a misquota- misapplication of this verse. I've heard it used, this verse, in terms of, well, I need to let the peace of Christ rule in my heart. That means I need, I need to have a, a, a feeling of calm, a feeling of quietness. That, um, you know, when I, when I just surrender everything to the Lord and turn everything over to Him, then, you know, I, I'm waiting for Christ to rule in my heart through peace. Y- yes, not, not an unbiblical concept. We find it elsewhere, but not what Paul's talking about here. When Paul uses the term peace here, he's not talking about a sense or a feeling of ease or tranquility. He's talking about what? The cessation of conflict. The absence of Animosity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And so we are knit together, we are bound together by Christ's love. And secondly, we are ruled by his peace. You know, it means, and I think I, think I, I led us down this road briefly last week, it, it means that when it comes to making decisions, um, just about any decision, but in particular decisions that have a direct impact or direct influence upon us, as a local church, when it comes to making those decisions, do you do you know what my number one, or one of my chief, what should be one of your chief priorities or factors that helps you make decisions, choices? It is this: To what extent will my decision? To what extent will my choice? To what extent will my action, my activity, my attitude actually promote or undermine the peace of Christ? That is a question we must always be asking. We're not talking about compromising the truth. And so to what extent will this promote and sustain and maintain the peace of Christ? It should always be of utmost importance with all the words, all our decisions, all of our actions. Will this facilitate the rule of the peace of Christ? Without compromising truth, we're not talking about compromising truth. Somebody comes in here and denies the doctrine of the Trinity, guess what? There's not going to be peace until we run them out of here. It's the way it is. We are not talking about compromising the truth. We are not talking about becoming spineless, wishy washy, believe whatever you believe. Let's just hold hands. And as I like to say, stand around the campfire and sing Kumbaya, which you always look blank at me as if you don't have any clue what that was. You obviously did not go to the same child, children's camp that I did growing up, but I think you get the idea. That is a prevailing mindset. We just need to all hold hands, get along, and talk about Jesus. Nobody ever wants to define who Jesus is, though. Nobody ever wants to define what Jesus has actually done. What is it we're actually supposed to believe? Well, no, we have a creed, we have a confession. There are truths which are non-negotiables. We're not talking about sacrificing those things. We're talking about once we have moved beyond those mountains upon which we stand, our confession, those things we hold dear, we enter into the realm of negotiables. And our primary goal should always be, as I make decisions, simply this, what is going to keep the peace? That's it. What is going to keep the peace? whereby the peace of Christ will rule in our hearts. The third mark, number three, of a church that lives out the reality of what it means to be one body. And now here we enter into new territory. Verse 16, permeated. Here it is, number three. Permeated by Christ's word. 16th verse. Again, it's a commandment. Notice in the 14th verse, it was a commandment. 15th verse, a commandment. 16th verse, another commandment. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I want to ask three questions. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but three questions. That if we can answer these, get our minds around the answers to these three, we'll have a pretty good idea of what Paul is saying here. Question number one is this. What are we supposed to do? What's... What are we supposed to do? Look very carefully at the commandment. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell. It has the idea of occupy. And so many of us at one time or another, we have purchased a house, right? Closing date arrives, and it is time to do what? Occupy the house. We show up with our moving van. We move everything in, we arrange all of our furniture, maybe we repaint the place beforehand, make some renovations, and then we ourselves, our physical bodies, we actually move in and we occupy now that space. We dwell in that home. That is what Paul is saying here, it's a commandment. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And here's what I want you you to get. I do not want you to miss this. There is a parallel passage in the book of Ephesians, also written by the Apostle Paul. It's chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And in that parallel passage, so you can take those verses, Ephesians 5, 18 and 20, take this verse here, Colossians 3, 16, and just put them side by side. And so here Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In the parallel passage, you know what he says? He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing making melody to the Lord with your... With your heart, giving thanks always to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are parallel passages. Now, here's what I want you to get, and I want us to really understand this. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be permeated by Christ's word. Here's where some of us stagger from the way. When it comes to being filled with the Holy Spirit, um, we we understand that spatially. The Holy Spirit is over here. And now he comes, spatially, and he is in me. That's not how we should understand what it means to be dwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's no more in you now than before you were saved. It's not spatial. It is influential. He now influences you in a way he never did before. How? By the word of Christ. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the word of God. And that's why scripture places such emphasis on have the word implanted in you. Take my word. We see this with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Take my word. They are to eat it and they are to swallow it and they are to digest it whereby it becomes a part of them. The word of Christ now occupies them. It now has taken over. It dwells in them. And it is through that word of Christ that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so one preacher stated the following, and I I think he's got onto something here. Acclaimed experience of God's Spirit, which does not uphold the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, is not an experience of God's Spirit. Because to be dwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit is to have the Word of Christ dwelling in you. To have the Word of Christ, the Scripture, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, dwelling in you is to be filled with The Holy Spirit influencing us in a way He's never done before as He illuminates the understanding, as He softens the heart whereby the Word of God, this objective Word of God is implanted in the head and in the heart whereby our lives are then brought into conformity with it. Second question is this, why should we do that? Why should we let the Word of Christ dwell in us? We'll read on. What does Paul say? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So there is an objective here. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are many reasons why the word of Christ ought to dwell in us. Paul has one particular reason in view here teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In other words, as the word of Christ dwells in us, as God answers that prayer, way way back in Colossians chapter 1, he prays that God will fill us with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The knowledge of his will, his will revealed in his word, that as we are filled with the knowledge of his word, and therefore the knowledge of his will, the result is what? Wisdom. And so as the word of Christ dwells in us, we are capacitated to do what? Two things he emphasizes here. Teach. The emphasis is what? Doctrinal. Right? And admonish. The emphasis is what? Practical. One another in all wisdom. Third question is this. How? In this context. In this context, how do we do that? We know what we should do. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. We know why we should do it, so that we can teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. But how do we do it in this particular context? This is fascinating. Singing. What? Singing. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, Paul isn't talking about singing in your car. You pull up to that stoplight, you've got your cell phone out, and you're just letting it rip. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about singing in the shower. He's talking about singing here, corporately, collectively. What's happening? Have you ever thought about this? What is actually happening when we sing? The best answer to that is found in the book of Psalms. I can't give it to you because there are, I don't know, 50 or 60 commandments in the book of Psalms uh, whereby the psalmist commands us to sing and gives four, four principal reasons why we ought to sing. First is this, we sing to praise God. As a matter of fact, I brought, what I brought up with me now, I told you I had a lot of paraphernalia up here, what I brought up with me is our song sheet, which is, you know, made available in the foyer for those who want it. And let me just illustrate these four from the songs we actually sang together this morning. And so when we sing, the book of Psalms tells us this, first reason we sing is to praise God with head and heart. And so just listen to what we sang, Oh God. There is none like you in all the earth, in all the earth. O God, who can compare to you, to you? Only you have no beginning. Only you could make the skies. Only you are truth unending. Only you are always wise. Lord, there is none like you. I don't know for certain, but I'm guessing that's based on Psalm 89, right? For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord. It is praise. We are addressing our God and celebrating who he is. Second thing we're doing is this. We're actually making requests. And so when we sing, we are actually praying. And so just consider this one. We sang just before I got up here to preach. Speak. It's a Getty song. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. If the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith, speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for our glory. Third reason the psalmist gives us is this. We sing to testify to who God is and what he has done. That was very prevalent in a couple of the songs we sang this morning. Listen to this stanza. Jesus, the Savior reigns, the God of truth and love. When he had purged our stains, he took his seat above. Lift up your voice, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say rejoice. We are celebrating who he is and what he has done. We did that in another song we sang at the cross. Amazing pity. Grace made known to me. Love beyond all I conceived, bought with the precious blood. Righteous now is how he looks at me. Aroma of Christ to God from me, bought with the precious blood. We do it every Sunday here. This third one, we testify to who God is and what he has done. But there's a fourth reason why we sing. There's a fourth thing that's actually happening. As we join with one voice collectively, corporately here on a Sunday morning to sing, and it is this. We are actually exhorting one another. That is what Paul is emphasizing here in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so he sang this, but a few moments ago, how firm, and it was an exhortation one to another, how firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And so we're doing all four when we gather here on a Sunday morning. Again, the one Paul is drawing our attention to here is the fourth. That the word of Christ is to dwell in us, that is, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, so that we might actually teach and admonish one another how, again, in this particular context, through our singing, through our singing. That's why when I'm, uh, when I'm here on a Sunday morning, you know, Claire is often sitting behind me, beautiful voice. I can hear Claire singing. But, you know, I'm listening for Randy as I stand there. I'm listening for Randy, Ike, Cody, Rick, some of these other guys. Once in a while I can catch them. Those of us who sing maybe not so well as others. And I'm listening for what? Their exhortation of me. And when I sing, I'm mindful of the fact I'm not merely addressing my God. I am actually addressing each and every one of you. I am teaching. You are teaching. I am admonishing. You are admonishing. Insofar as the songs we sing actually reflect the content of God's word. That as that word dwells in us and we sing, we make melody with our hearts. Yes, we're addressing the Almighty. Praise. Hallelujah. Without any doubt. Thanksgiving. But of equal importance, we are actually speaking one to another. This would be a fascinating study. I've never done it. I've only glanced at it briefly, but I think I'm on to something here. You go back and you look at the evolution of, our, of, our, of songs. You go back into the 1700s and the 1800s, you'll find, we'll discover that by and large, not, not every song, but by and large, the emphasis in, on, in those songs, yes, we address God in praise, Yes, there are prayer requests. Yes, we're testifying to what God has done, who he is, what the Lord Jesus has done, who he is. And there is tremendous emphasis also on exhorting one another. That's why many of those songs are often in the third person or they're in the second person. We're addressing each other. Now, you fast forward to the last 20 years and you look at the majority of the songs that have been written in the last 20 years. The emphasis is, is on what? I, me, you, you. I, you. I, you. Me, you. Because it has become very personalized. It has become very individualistic. The emphasis is almost exclusively now on what? Praise. I have no problem with that. We should have no problem with that. that, that that's fantastic. But something perhaps we don't understand, as well as our forefathers understood, is all that's going on when we gather corporately, collectively, to sing. And this tremendous responsibility... This tremendous ministry, it doesn't matter how well we sing, how poorly we sing, we are actually ministering to one another. We are ministering the word of Christ, teaching through our songs, doctrine, admonishing one another. And sometimes that is lost. I think that's, that's one of the key reasons why this church has suffered from its loss of psalm singing. The church has suffered I'm convinced of this. I'm not a Psalms-only guy. Do not misunderstand me. I don't go anywhere near that road. But I I wonder sometimes, as I study history, and I look back in history, with the complete rejection of the book of Psalms, not the complete rejection, but just downplaying the book of Psalms in our singing, what have been the consequences when it actually comes to the word of Christ reigning in us? and speaking the word of truth to others corporately and collectively with we, when we sing. the things I think about, things I wonder about. What do, what do we sacrifice? What are the results, the net results, the repercussions, the consequences when we, when we push things this way or we gravitate that way? And here Paul just gives us a tremendous emphasis. I, I would hazard a guess, most of us here right now this morning, you've never heard that before in your life. And yet there it is in black and white. The role of singing. I'd never really considered it till a couple of years ago. Uh, what exactly is going on? And its corporate influence, its corporate effect, and what a tremendous responsibility to obey this commandment when we gather on a Sunday to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. But there's a fourth mark. Compelled by Christ's name. Just briefly, it brings us into verse 17, obviously, another command. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, that phrase tells us that what Paul is doing here at this juncture is he summarizing the entire paragraph. And so he's taking us back probably to the 12th verse, which is where the paragraph really begins. And he's saying, look, everything I've said, whatever you do, all these commands I've given you to this point, whatever you do, word or deed, here, here, here needs to be the motivating factor. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. The fourth mark of a church that lives out the reality of what it means to be one body, compelled, That church is compelled by Christ's name. Meaning what? It does not mean we simply tack his name on the end of everything we say and do. That practice has been used to justify all sorts of despicable behavior. He's not talking about simply adding Christ's name on the end of everything. No, what's he speaking of? He's speaking about acting, doing, saying, thinking. Three things. Number one. In harmony with Christ's will. He has revealed his will in his word. Therefore, everything I do in word or in deed, I'm going to do in the name of the Lord. That is, I'm going to do in harmony with his will. Secondly, in subjection to his authority. That ultimately he rules. Ultimately he reigns. And so whatever I do, I'm doing in the name of the Lord and trusting it to him knowing that the heavens are the throne, his throne, the earth is his footstool. Thirdly, it means independence. Independence, two words, on Christ's ability. So all that I do in word and deed, I do in the name of the Lord. That is not in my own strength, but in his strength. The one who has saved me, the one who sustains me, the one who strengthens me. And so when I speak... When I act in harmony with his will, in subjection to his authority, and in dependence upon his ability, that means I am being compelled in everything by his, his name. Now one final concluding thought. Look at the statement right at the end of verse 17. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Look again at the statement right at the end of verse 16. With thankfulness in your hearts to God, Look at the statement right at the end of verse 15 and be thankful. What do we have here? We have the fuel for the fire. So you want a fire out in your backyard, fire pit. You're going to roast marshmallows or something. Having a gang over, it's going to be a wonderful evening. Throw some newspaper on there to get it going. Twigs, branches, kindling, a couple of small logs, a little lighter Fluid, if you're ambitious, you light the match, stand back, let it go. Blaze. But it's soon what? The flames begin to dissipate, disappear. What do you need to do? You add more fuel. You throw a big log on there. And it burns pretty good for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, but the marshmallows aren't even roasted yet. People haven't come outside. The fire's starting to die out. What do you need to do? You need to add more fuel. And you keep adding the fuel. The fire is our love for God. And at times it's raging, isn't it? At times it's roaring. At times it's a beautiful, big, enormous fire. And at times it's what? We have to kick the darkened, parched logs, smoking and smoldering there in the pit, just to find a little spark underneath them in the ash. And what do we need to do? We need to add fuel. What is the fuel? It is Thanksgiving. And so think it through. Think it through. In this passage of Scripture, as a matter of fact, in the entire chapter, chapter 3, Paul is emphasizing obedience. At least 22 commands. We need to obey. He's commanding us to do this, commanding us not to do that. Obedience. The only reason we ever obey is out of what? Love for God. As the flames are burning bright. What is the only way to feed that flame, feed that fire? What is the only fuel that will cause it to, to, to burn up and to grow? It is thanksgiving. And this Thanksgiving, what's at the foundation of it? It drives us all the way back, and I hope you know where I'm going with this, to the first four verses of the chapter. Because in the first four verses of the chapter, what does Paul do? He lays the foundation for every commandment. How? By showing us who and what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. He emphasizes the past. We are one with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. The penalty of our sin paid in full. The duty of the law, he's fulfilled it all through his perfect life. I am now one with him, the penalty removed and the power of my sin broken. He brings us to the present, that right now my life, the life I live, it is hid with Christ in God. That he has blessed me with every spiritual blessing. He has given me, granted me an inheritance. He has made some beautiful, wonderful promises. And he's given me the pledge of the Holy Spirit. This guarantee that the day will come when I will enter into my inheritance. All of that, but not now. Now that life is hid with Christ in God. But the day is coming when he will return. And when he is glorified in the earth, I will be glorified with him who and what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Cause for? Thankfulness. In the midst of that, what does Paul say? He gives a commandment. Set your mind on things above. How do I set my mind on things above? Well, in terms of my relationship with God, I mortify sin. I go after my idolatry with a vengeance. In terms of this community of believers, I put on Christ. And I put on compassion and gentleness and kindness. And above all these things, I put on love. I let the peace of Christ rule in my heart. I let the word of Christ dwell in me, whereby I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of this I obey. There it is, obeying what my master commands of me. But that obedience is compelled by what? My love for him. My love for him is compelled by what? Oh, my sense of thankfulness. Gratitude. And my gratitude is compelled by what? I understand who and what I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the starting point. We never lose sight of it. We never get over it. Who we are in Christ. Past, present, future. And that stirs up in us. as we, It's like drawing from this bottomless well. It stirs up in us these well springs, this joy of thanksgiving. That becomes the fuel that, by which the fire burns our love for God. And out of love for God, we obey him. Four marks, bound by Christ's love. Mark number two, ruled by Christ's peace. Mark number three, permeated by Christ's word. And mark number four, compelled by Christ's name. Our Father, we do thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his finished work upon Calvary's cross. We thank you for his resurrection. And we thank you for his ascension whereby he is seated at your right hand in glory. We thank you for the day in which you saved us. Uh, You gave us understanding. You opened our eyes. You gave sight to those who were spiritually blind, whereby our worldview was completely transformed. Our entire understanding of reality changed. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We pray for your ongoing work of renewal in us. May your word truly dwell in us. May it be implanted deep within, whereby our lives are brought daily in ever greater conformity to your will. And our Father, we do intercede for those here this day, this moment, who are on the outside looking in. Uh, You know every heart. Uh, You know the condition of every man, every woman gathered here this day. And for those who are on the outside looking in, we do pray that you'd be merciful. We pray that you would reveal the glory of Christ in the gospel. That you would convict of sin. That you would convince of the truth of your word. And we seek these things from you. In the matchless name of Christ. Amen.